This is a vital update about coronavirus. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. Good evening. The coronavirus is the biggest threat this country has faced for decades. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. Today, I can announce that for the first time in our history, the government is going to step in and help to pay people's wages. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. But we are hearing in the last few moments that the Prime Minister has been taken to hospital. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. Well, I'm sorry if people feel that there have been failings. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. Are you I have a great, I have great love for, for all of the people from our country. But uh, as you know, China tried to say at one point, maybe they stopped now, that it was caused by American soldiers. That can't happen. It's not going to happen. Not as long as I'm president. Uh, it comes from China. Stay home. Protect the NHS. Save lives. I can report through the government's ongoing monitoring and testing program that as of 9 a.m. today, there have been 300,034, 974,000 tests carried out across the UK. Stay home. Protect the NHS. Save lives. A lot of good things have come out about the hydroxy. A lot of good things have come out. And you'd be surprised at how many people are taking it, especially the frontline workers, before you catch it. The frontline workers, many, many are taking it. I happen to be taking it. I happen to be taking it. Stay home. Protect the NHS. Save lives. The head of the World Health Organization has defended its handling of the coronavirus pandemic. The WHO has been sharply criticized by the United States and will be the subject of an independent inquiry. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. How did they come up with this number of six feet? I think they just pulled it out of their rear end. Stay home. Protect the NHS. Save lives. I'm protesting because our liberties have been taken away by a government under, under, under dodgy scientific data. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. And then I said, supposing you brought the light inside the body, you can, which you can do either through the skin or uh, in some other way. And I think you said you're going to test that too. Sounds interesting. Right, and then I see the disinfectant, where it knocks it out in a minute. 
one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or or almost a cleaning? Because you see it gets on the lungs and it does a tremendous number of the lungs. So it'd be interesting to check that so that you're going to have to use medical doctors. Stay home. Protect the NHS. Save lives. Our headlines today, a defiant response from Downing Street over new allegations that the Prime Minister's chief aide breached lockdown rules. To help save lives, stay at home. This is the second Take Orally special on COVID-19. In part one, I was joined by Dr Andrew Lindsay, consultant in emergency medicine, to discuss the response to the pandemic and its impact on our department at the Queen's Medical Centre, Nottingham. In this episode, I sat down two metres apart with Dr Colin Gilhooley, consultant in paediatric emergency medicine, and Dr Shana Shan, head smart fellow, to talk about children and young people with COVID-19 and the implications of this pandemic on paediatric services. All information is correct at the time of recording. Any and all guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Uh, hello, welcome back uh, to Take Orally and uh, a paediatric COVID special. And uh, when it's a special, it requires special people. So I'm delighted that HeadSmart fellow Shana Shan has joined us. Hello, Shana. Hello. And uh, paediatric consultant Colin Gilhooley. Hello, Colin. Hi. How are you both? Good, thank you. Yeah, very well, thank you. Yourself? Very good. Socially distancing okay? Absolutely. We're about two metres apart, for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> apart. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so, in this episode, we're going to be looking at um, kids with COVID and the spectrum of disease that we're seeing. We're going to touch on a alert from the Pediatric Intensive Care Society uh, they came, came out on social media yesterday and then we're also going to have a talk about the unintentional consequences of COVID in kids who don't actually have it and, and the impact on their care. So, Shana has lots of notes in front of her. She's been very good. Colin has none. Um, <laughs> He's been very bad. <laughs> She's been very bad. <laughs> bad Colin. Uh, so, let's talk about then the spectrum of disease that we're seeing. Let's talk about COVID in kids, how they present. So I think um, when the first set of data came out from China, all the paediatricians across the world were probably quite interested um, because children appeared to be significantly less affected than adults. And this was not only in terms of the numbers of children affected, but also in terms of severity. So I think the first report, there were no deaths in uh, less than 10-year-olds um, and critical illness was really rare as well. Um, it was something like 0.6%, so and mainly in the very young infants. And then as more and more data came out, this was reproduced So um, in Italy um, and in South Korea and Iceland. And actually, South Korea and Iceland, really important, because they were the countries who have been doing more widespread community testing. Mm. Um, so actually, you could say that their data was probably more accurate. Um, so in terms of Italy, there was a, a town called Vaux where they screened about 70% of their inhabitants and um, of 2.6 of the general population were positive and none in the under 10 group. Um, and Japan did some contact tracing data and they actually showed as well that there were lower attack rates in kids. And I suppose the question of transmission and, and why children 
are having lower numbers is really difficult to answer and things are really unclear at the minute. So we're not really sure that children are the super spreaders that we thought they were mm. initially. Um, and the feeling are that children are probably more likely to be asymptomatic and unlikely to be the index case. So this has been supported by uh, some family cluster studies in China and there was a case in France where um, a, a positive child in the French Alps didn't transmit to anyone else despite being exposed mm. to over 100 people. Mm. And so, children tend to be very liberal with their germs when they yes. do get something. Yes, the snot gets smeared everywhere. Mm. Um, and actually in terms of clinical features as well um, they seem to be presenting differently to adults so a significant number don't appear to have any symptoms at all and if they do it tends to be mild um, so from the data so far we know that about 50% of children will present with a cough or fever about 30-40% to 40% are presenting with uh, snottiness and sore throats and 10% with diarrhoea and vomiting. And in some of those cases, the diarrhoea and vomiting are the main presenting features. They're not having their, their cough and their fever. And to our knowledge so far, um, they don't have the same anosmia symptoms that adults seem to be presenting with. Um, there has been some anecdotal stuff about rashes, chillblains. Um, but we don't have any evidence base for it as yet. Mm. So that's really interesting. So it seems to be a very different picture to adults. Mm. And is that because children come across other coronaviruses normally, or do we just not know yet? I think there's been quite a few theories postulated on what the, what the cause might be. It's clear that in the very early part of the illness, the symptoms are probably quite similar. Mm. Mm. coughs cold, mm. maybe even a flu-like illness, but it's that development, that, that movement onto a much more significant mm. uh, clinical illness that just doesn't seem to be there. People have put forward lots of different things, you know, is the way that the alveolar, alveoli, alveoli work in children uh, different, or so is there different expressions of particular receptors? Uh, the ACE receptor has been one that's been mentioned in that actually, therefore, coronavirus doesn't bind uh, to a cellular level, so it doesn't have a way in in the alveoli to cause the same degree of inflammatory cascade. But these are very early uh, theories, and I don't think we all know. All we know that it clearly is true, and it's been reproduced throughout the world. Mm. And I think it also, also with all your tests, so with blood tests, for example, Again, it's different in adults, so your lymphocytopenia that you're getting in adults is really rare in children, and actually we're seeing probably more normal or raised lymphocytes, mm. um, mildly raised CRP, and um, some slight raise in liver transaminases, but nothing that is going to pinpoint this as, as COVID amongst mm. children. And equally in chest X-rays, um, so... You know, most often, I think, with the data reported, the chest x-ray is normal, even the CT chest is normal. But when abnormalities are there, they seem to be less severe than in adults. So okay. chest x-rays have been reported as being more of a bilateral pneumonia, and your CT scans have more of a mild bilateral ground glass appearance. Um, so similar to the adult picture, but not as bad? Not as bad, from what we can see so what far from the evidence base. Yeah. So Colin's right, the issue we have here is that it's there's so little to help us mm. differentiate kids mm. with 
COVID-19 to any other viral illness that they come in with. I was going to say, you know, coughs, colds, coryza and vomiting, diarrhoea is not very specific, is it? No, <laughs> absolutely. And, you know, I know all about non-specific symptoms in children. <laughs> um, so it's really difficult to be able to really highlight which children are going to go on to be mm. more serious, if they are at all. Mm. Um, and even the neonatal evidence so far, all the reported cases seem to be very mild, self-limiting, requiring not much support. And even the data with children with comorbidities seems to be really reassuring right now, mm. um, which, is, which seems good up until yesterday. <laughs> Brilliantly segued. <laughs> Until dun dun dun. Uh, Colin, would you like to tell us what, what happened yesterday? So yesterday. Uh, yesterday being April the twenty sixth. April the twenty sixth, two thousand and twenty. Yep. Uh, PICS, the Paediatric Intensive Care Society of the UK, um, released by NHS England a note that what they'd been noting in the paediatric intensive care units around London was an increased presentations uh, of children with multi-systemic inflammatory states. Uh, and the features of the illness appeared to be uh, similar to those or overlapping with toxic shock and atypical Kawasaki's. Mm. Some of these children were COVID positive, some of them were COVID negative, uh, but a lot of them appeared to have abdominal symptoms, GI symptoms, and some associated cardiac inflammation as a result of that. Mm. Um, it's really difficult at the moment because what we don't have is any numbers on how many they were, uh, how many centres were involved. It just says various centres. Um, Over the past whether, three weeks, it just yeah, yeah the last three yeah, weeks. Yeah. And so the question is, is, is this actually just children who are going to get unwell anyway? Is it children who have a completely unidentified infectious pathogen causing these things? Mm. And as we've just talked about, that children are off asymptomatic with uh, COVID-19. So is it that some of them are testing positive because they're asymptomatic from that point of view, but have another pathogen that we, we are unsure of yet? And it's difficult to know. What's not helped in this situation is the poor sensitivity of the swab itself. Yes. Um, which you know is multifactorial in terms of the sensitivity of the test and also um, the person taking it and uh, how well the swab has been done. Mm. Um, so whilst this is a very interesting piece of information and sharing it widely, um, as Shana said to me earlier, is very important, um, this probably throws up more questions than answers yeah. uh, and leads us to have to be very careful and vigilant um, which I think everyone has been over over the past kind of six, eight weeks or so as things have started to heat up in the UK. It's been hard not to be vigilant, really. <laughs> uh, quite. But I think yes. like a lot of everything, I think it's we're trying to fly a plane whilst it's still being built at the moment. As yes. The evidence is still... Um, OK, so uh, let's say I'm a concerned parent. I've got uh, my partner. I've got a couple of kids. One of them is not well. And I've come to children's A&E concerned that my little one has this nasty virus that's around and what about the risk for my other children as well? What are we, what are we currently doing? So currently we are trying to um, behave in the way that we would normally behave. So normal 
I was trying to business. Business is normal. Business as usual. Business as usual. So we would do a full assessment of these children, take a detailed history, um, and try. I think what's really important is trying to remember that despite the fact that COVID is around, everything that is non-COVID is still happening. Um, and I think that's really difficult in this era when you turn on the news and you're in isolation to to be able to put that into perspective. Mm. And everyone is clearly worried. Of course, all the the details that we've just spoken about in this podcast shows that everything is reassuring from a children's point of view. And so we have developed patient information leaflets uh, to, to make sure parents are aware of, of what the situation is. Um, and we are assessing and safety netting as normal. I think it's important that regard that information is there and it's really reassuring to us as clinicians, but it's just about how we get that message across to parents. If I tell parents that only one in a thousand children might get admitted to intensive care, I don't think that reassures parents very much. No. You know, that Those kind of statistics are very useful to us, but actually legitimising them, of course they're concerned, of course they're worried. What do they mm-hmm. see on the news every day? What's number one item? You know, what's Absolutely. everyone watching out for? How many people have died today? Mm-hmm. Number one item. Mm-hmm. And if that's what you're being told on a daily basis, you're going to be worried and you're going to be concerned and you have to address that and you have to be open and honest about it when you speak to parents. And this is something much wider than just about COVID, but it is about legitimising those parents' concern and then from there moving on together to say, I understand why you are, okay? Let me tell you why I'm reassured, Mm. you know, and try and go through with them um, about all the positives, Mm. you know, and what Shana just said, safety net. Mm. You know, is that thing of, Children change fast, uh, and so parents need to, some information for things to watch out for so that they know that they can feel confident at home mm-hmm. and they know that children's services are still there, they're yes. still working, they're still up and running. We have the capacity to see children who are unwell. Mm-hmm. So don't be worried about coming and seeing us. Mm-hmm. There's been lots of social media about consultants doing just that and appearing in videos going, we are still here. Yeah. Which I never thought I'd ever see A&E going, come on, come in. It's <laughs> <laughs> the other yeah, way, isn't it? You know, please, please don't, you know. But yeah. um, so you, you talked a bit about blood tests and imaging. I know in, in children, obviously, there's a less testing usually. So what, what's guiding whether or not you're doing blood tests and, and imaging? In, in so that would, again, be business as usual. Mm. You know, there's nothing about COVID that changes the way we investigate. If the child is clinically well and suitable to go home, mm-hmm. don't need any investigations. Mm-hmm. If our clinical uh, uh, assessment is that they need further investigations, then we'll do them. Um, But COVID hasn't really changed that. The only thing it might have changed is that um, we are trying to keep staff safe. So, you know, things like uh, ENT examinations need to to be considered where they're truly necessary. Um, Because actually, when children come to the emergency department, the question isn't, am I worried about the child getting... Uh, getting on well with COVID. It's more, am I worried about my staff catching COVID? Mm. Because they're probably at a higher risk. Mm. Mm. And so trying to keep staff safe throughout all of this, make sure they feel safe uh, and that they have the support they need is far more important. Mm. Um, In terms of um, that the older you are, the higher your risk. Yeah. And how has it been in terms of your query symptomatic patients versus patients coming in with 
other issues that are non-COVID related? Challenging. And I think everyone would say that has been a huge challenge. Our infrastructure just simply isn't set up to, to deal with that. You know, trying to have uh, two adult emergency departments and two paediatric emergency departments all running simultaneously is next to impossible. Um, and But that's what we've had to do. And you, know, you try and minimise the risk where you can. Um, I think what I would say is we've all learned a phenomenal amount about this when we mm. when we look back and we say that there was a national plan a local plan a de departmental plan for how to deal with the pandemic i think what we've probably realized is that actually living it is very different from yeah. from having a plan for it <laughs> um, and i certainly hope once all this is finished that i don't see it again but <laughs> all of us would <laughs> feel that actually we'd be in a much better position position to deal with it again and I guess that's true of anything when you've got experience, isn't it? Whether it be a cardiac arrest, yes. uh, yeah. dealing with a yeah. pandemic, writing your thesis, whichever mm. one it is, you know, once you've done one, you'll be better at it next time. Mm. Mm. I think we, uh, as a department, both adults and children, have worked together. The teamwork has been absolutely brilliant. Mm. It has been... Uh, fast-paced and changing on a daily basis mm. uh, given the feedback from staff patients parents on how it's working and I think actually we've done a brilliant job cool. and suppose for the, that vast majority of patients who are, you can reassure and go home there's the seven days advice 14 mm -hmm. days for everybody else yeah. that we all know off the top of our head now because yeah. <laughs> we keep saying it to so many people I think what could be interesting though is if um, this app is developed uh, that allows for contact tracing mm. yes. uh, via mobile phones, this could present another challenge uh, to the NHS workforce um, because there's the mm. potential that you're just going to get a text message saying, you've been in contact with someone, we know you've been close to them, you now need to isolate for seven days, even mm. though you didn't even know that you'd passed them. And yes. that could create, and as that, if that's as effective as it looked like it probably was in South Korea, in terms of them being able to contact trace so effectively, um, it could have significant implications for the medical uh, and nursing workforce in this hospital mm. and Absolutely. the wider UK. Mm. And I think it's probably worth us just thinking about that yeah. now uh, mm. and being aware, because actually what we're thinking is, oh, okay, we've reached a peak. But actually what we're hearing is that, you know, business of usual hasn't been there. So what if business as usual comes back, but then yeah. contact tracing comes in and we lose our workforce? Yes. Mm. That could present another challenge that probably needs something designed quite early on. I think a lot of that, um, that's a big issue with a lot of those apps. So similar to those heart tracing apps you can have on your watch that are now detecting atrial fibrillation, you need mm. to go and see your doctor. And Yes. How accurate that is, and etc. etc. Et cool. Um, so, talked a lot there about patients with COVID and, and very reassuring data, as, as Shana took us through, and, and um, clinical picture. You started touching on business as usual, mm -hmm. and Shana's already mentioned not every kid has COVID at the moment. <laughs> and um, it's not kids, but the British Heart Foundation released over the weekend that uh, some data that heart attacks have dropped by a half since March in the UK. 
as in admissions due to heart attacks. So yes, yes absolutely. Um, so what about the implication then on business as usual on, on other children's services? Colin, would you like to? So I guess that's probably uh, one of the scariest things uh, about all of this is the number of safeguarding referrals for children have fallen dramatically. Um, the number, Shana will know much more about this than me, but the number of diagnoses of children with oncological diagnoses mm -hmm. has dramatically fallen. We have seen multiple children presenting in DKA, significantly unwell, with PHs of less than seven and GCSs of less than eight, who've required intensive care while they've been sat at home not wanting to come to the hospital. Clearly, people are delaying presenting to the emergency department. And that's a real worry because it's making children more unwell. There is the unintended, unintended consequence of a lockdown, is that when you don't have an acute severe illness, you stay at home with your symptoms that have been bubbling on and bubbling on when normally you would go and see your GP. You would complete a two-week wait referral. And I think if you look at adult services, they drop to a scarily low level. You brought up heart attacks, TIA, strokes. We could be here all day. The question, when we sit back and look at this, about increased mortality will be what is COVID related and mm. what is non-COVID yeah. related. Mm. And I think it's a real issue, especially in paediatric services where they have a mild illness for the most part with COVID. Mm. Uh, and that's not to take away that there, there have been children who've got significantly unwell with COVID. Yeah. And unfortunately, there have been children who have died, so it can happen. But it's a very, very small number relative to, to those who probably get infected. Um, so yeah, a real worry and a real concern. Um, and again, I reiterate, we are open. We have rapid access clinics with paediatric consultants available to see children. Primary care can refer in, these children will still be seen. Um, and if you are worried about your child, if you are worried about a child, get in contact. Emergency department's opened. We have outpatients clinic running to see people who uh, might be unwell or might have a significant diagnosis that needs to be looked into. Shana, with your head smart hat on, uh, as you know in a previous podcast you talked us through, I mean Colin's mentioned there about on oncology, have, have you noticed anything, have you heard anything on the grapevine? Yes, so I think, I think Colin's right, I think everyone's worried um, and particularly the unintended consequences on children because as paediatricians we feel that children there is a there's a health inequality there are social inequalities we have to advocate for them because they can't advocate for themselves and I think sometimes I completely understand public health messaging needs to be clear mm -hmm. and it needs to be short so people understand but actually it children are not just little adults and we say this all the time <laughs> so we're saying stay at home stay at home you know, um, and actually the message there for parents and families is they, the fear is that they should stay at home. And so mm. the fear for us is that these children are, are at home suffering from potentially non-specific symptoms mm. um, with nowhere to go. Mm. And I think, you know, we've already seen, I think, a, probably a 50% reduction in attendances mm -hmm. compared to this time yeah. last year. So actually... There are going to be a proportion of those that are true, valid reasons. So, you know, 
we're not going out to your road traffic accidents, your traumas, they're not at school playing football, you know, all those things means your injuries are going to be down, your traumas are going to be down. Um, you know, there are probably uh, hypotheses postulated to pollution, so we have seen reduced numbers of wheezes, so that, that's probably got something to do with that. Um, now, in terms of the oncology world, we have seen, um, and this is anecdotal at the moment, so we are collecting evidence, and this is where evidence is really important. Numbers are important because, like we said earlier, we can look at things and say, oh, this serious illness, you know, some people are COVID positive, some people are not. Is this because of COVID? Is it not? Is it the chicken? Is it the egg? And we have to be really mindful of keeping our eye on the ball mm. and saying, actually, what are the true numbers in this? Mm. We know that new diagnoses have dropped nationally um, and we are collecting data to see what's happening. Compared to something like DKA, where we know that viral illness can precipitate a DKA, so that could be why we are seeing more new diagnoses and those with diabetes in DKA, children's cancer is not the same. So the fear is that children are sitting at home they should be here, there wouldn't be a reason why cancer suddenly stops developing. So, you know, we're worried about these children that are at home. And here, certainly, we have set up two rapid access clinics per day to see children with non-specific symptoms. And we've had one referral in the last month. Now, Where was that from? Was it a GP or a from? It was from a GP. From a GP. From a GP, and it is it's predominantly GPs or yeah. A&E that will refer yeah. for these rapid access clinics. Now, the Royal College have obviously taken on board um, and, and obviously realised the concern, and they had published evidence, or published guidance, sorry, uh, for when to seek help for your child mm. with a traffic light system, which is brilliant. Again, it, it's based on kind of severe symptoms that will need to be seen in the emergency department. Um, and so, unfortunately, cancer cases and presentation symptoms fall in that green category, where if you've got a headache, yeah. for example, that's ongoing, um, seems to be, uh, you know, we just need to understand where we are going to see these children. And unfortunately, at the moment, the emergency department is probably the only place that is seeing children face-to-face. Um, and that's no fault of primary care, but they have reconfigured their services mm. to manage this pandemic, which means they are not seeing people yeah. face-to-face. And so this means there are children at home, parents at home, not wanting to come in for fear of catching COVID, not knowing where else to go. Mm. There are probably primary care physicians assuming that outpatient clinics have been cancelled and so not knowing where to refer or, or sitting on sitting on them thinking well this is not an acute symptom yeah. let's just call them in regular intervals and see how this goes and see if we can manage it and I think that's where our concerns are coming where mm-hmm. we're trying to collect data so that we can make a change as quickly as possible to the pathways nationally so that these children can get in to see their paediatricians we are open um, and it, whether it's in the emergency department or not um, and it'll be really interesting to see what, what data we come up with compared to this time last year. Mm. I suppose, again, like you've said, with we hopefully would be ready 
again, if there were, were another pandemic of COVID, influenza, whatever, mm-hmm. I suppose, again, it goes into that planning of, well, you know, we mobilised very well, we, we got excess ventilators or whatever, but actually it was the that other stuff, the unintended consequences, such as oncology referrals, that actually need to be part of our planning as well, mm-hmm. um, having gone through this. Yeah. I think that's the thing, it's just joined up thinking, isn't it? If everyone's re- reconfiguring the ways they work, mm. Who's reconfiguring the way the actual whole system works? Mm-hmm. Primary care changes the way it works, and secondary care changes the way it works. But then the interface needs to be completely Do they actually still lock yeah. in together? Well, yeah. where is that yeah. interface now? Yeah. And I, I was listening to Radio 4 this morning because I'm a white middle class male. I'm with kids, drinking my black coffee, listening to it. And they were talking about um, uh, domestic violence, sadly increasing because of you are locked in with a violent person and obviously as children are going to be part of that situation and you mentioned safeguarding referrals are down so there is increased tensions you can't go out and and our NAI risks increase as a result. Yeah absolutely and again that's another thing that is being looked at so time are even trying to have a look at the safeguarding traumas that they see and audit them. Mm. Currently um, and obviously, the real worry with safeguarding is that a huge number of ferals come from school. That's, yeah. Mm. And so if these children aren't going to school, those bruises on those children aren't being seen and they're not being referred. Mm. And the real worry is that there could be an escalation uh, in terms of the abuse, which is a, a massive concern and a massive worry and uh, mm. something else that you know we need to be really mindful and certainly from the point of view of uh, myself and everyone I work with in the children's emergency department we need to be really mindful that we could be the only contact this child has for months and months and therefore we have to make sure we're being vigilant asking the right questions and thinking things through a second time and a third time and if we have any concerns we have to raise them and it on that note and it on that note marvellous um thank you very much Shana you are on twitter I am at HeadSmartFellow. Headsmart at HeadSmartFellow. Marvellous. And HeadSmart website is, remind me again, www.headsmart.org.uk. Brilliant resources. Fantastic. And we've already podcasted with you before, so we'll come yeah. that one as well. Colin, you are on Twitter, but you don't do anything about it. So yeah. I'm on there. At <laughs> PZDCon. But yes. yes, I don't think you ever tweet, ever. Very disappointing. Yeah. I'm sorry. I should be better, but. Yeah. Um, and your Twitter uh, handle should be Gingangilgilgilhuli. Gingangilgilhuli. Gingangilgilhuli. Have to see if it's taken or not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it is. Um, thank you so much, Shana. Thank You're you. most welcome. Thank you for having me. No worries. Thank you so much, Colin. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye bye. <laughs>